Shame is a fracturing emotion. In metamodernism, it bridges the formal and narrative gap between immersive lyrical prose and a stark reorientation towards moments of authentic impressionism. It is a bridge, as Danza Javi argues, between the minimalist notion of an experiential self and the richer notion of a narratively extended self. It is a complex emotion, one that can be categorised as a moral evaluation, or as psychologist Michael Lewis states, a self-conscious emotion. An emotion whose moral value is, according to Michelle Mason, vindicated insofar as shamelessness is, with some exceptions, a moral fault. In terms of phenomenology, shame has a revelatory focus as it, as it positions the self in the gaze of another, or, if alone, outside a normative framework of behaviour. Psychotherapist Robert Solero, in his paper Heidegger Mood and the Lived Body, The Ontical and the Ontological, states that in his view, just as existential anxiety is disclosive of authentic existing, it is shame that most clearly discloses inauthentic or unowned existing. In shame, we are held hostage by the eyes of others. We belong not to ourselves, but to them. To feel ashamed is therefore an act of repositioning, which in contemporary British fiction is a restructuring of form towards more authentic representation. Peter Boxall claims that 21st century literature is part of a different fabric as temporal and spatial qualities readjust to fit new parameters of digital media and global surveillance. And thus it is through fiction, I believe, where we bear witness to our collective shame of this new realm of the digital banal. Tom McCarthy's Remainder, published in 2005, and Ellie Williams' debut collection of short stories, A Trip, published in 2017, are part of a newly emerging effective structure within contemporary fiction. Seeking to move beyond the relativism of postmodernism, Vermeulen and Van der Nacker highlight this nascent field as the metamodern, a structure of feeling characterised by an oscillating in-betweenness, or rather, a dialectical movement that identifies with and negates conflicting positions while being never congruent with these positions. This unidentified affect is, I will argue, a sense of shame. The shame of our divided, incendiary topography and a second-hand shame towards our shameless dependence of a life both at the centre and the margins of the digital sphere. McCarthy's text implicitly invokes the notion of primitive technologies existing outside technological advancements, whilst Williams explores the reclusive online space. Both texts conceptualise the constant observation and sensory onslaught of the contemporary moment, mediating shame through reenactments and consolation, respectively. Extending the metaphor of the, di the digital I posit that the temporal processing within moments of shame acts as a buffer against everyday time, particularly against the frenetic pace of late capitalism. <coughs> shame is thus a political act, emphasising Willinson's argument that shame is a signal of the new and the strange, and whilst the disruptions of temporal flow may deeply disturb us, they are crucial for any process of freedom and individuation. Remainder is a first-person narrative, following an unnamed narrator as he is injured in a mysterious accident and receives a settlement of £8.5 million. He's not allowed to discuss the nature of the accident 
and thus the authenticity of the entire novel is called into question as the construction of the text remains elusively within the realms of the settlement. The settlement, he states, that word settlement, settlement, it wormed its way into my coma. Weeks later, after I had emerged from the coma, come off the drip feed and put on some mushy solids, I'd think of the words middle bit, the L, each time I tried to swallow. The settlement made me gag before it gagged me, that's for sure. The nebulous, unspeakable quality of the contract is thus the first indicator of the elastic tension between shamelessness and shame and inauthenticity and authenticity within the novel. The novel is written within the confines of this mysterious pact, following rules that have been agreed upon by fictional law, mimicking societal rules which inhibit truth in an attempt to control shame. The reader understands the rules of the contract and partakes in the oscillating nature of the settlement, something both generous and limiting. We are bystanders in the traumatic after effect of the accident. As the settlement constructs the limits of the text, it presents the first indicator of the metamodern sensibility. A newly constructed series of limitations that's both generous and yet still belongs to the rigorous self-improvement of postmodern subjectivity. The settlement flexes and strains within the text as the narrator seeks to push against it, willing to tell the reader the truth of the accident, yet silenced by its cause. The obscene generosity of the settlement is an attempt to control the enlightened response to the accident, which shame would provoke. McCarthy's novel is fundamentally about the instructive guidance that is driven by shame, but demarcated through a plot which prevents shame from being fully realised. The settlement is thus application, an attempt to seduce the narrator with money and a shameless lack of purpose. It is on the surface a generous compensation for the narrator's experience, yet completely lacking in satisfaction. The silencing clause disallows any catharsis which the protagonist might feel. The enforced secrecy reiterates the dissatisfaction of the settlement, instilling a sedation that orients the narrator away from shame towards shameless ignorance. Adam Phillips argues that the language of satisfaction is notably impoverished, riddled with cliches and exclamations, and this is reiterated through the solicitor's claim that it is an unprecedented sum. Well done. The initial attempt at cliché satisfaction is there, but it's not realised, as the narrator retorts, I didn't earn it. Satisfaction always occurs twice, within the mind and then in reality. However, the narrator cuts his process short, with his comment on worth, severing the short-lived attempts at contentment. The settlement thus morphs into a beacon of inauthenticity, a prescription for shameless and alienating behaviour in the face of trauma. As the limits of the settlement become the limits of the text itself, it becomes clear that the text will oscillate between shamelessness and shame, highlighting Huber and Seater's argument that in its depiction of a quest for ultimate authentic being, remainder progresses beyond a mere recovery of personal history and identity. Remainder is a novel about the motivating aspects of shame, which is able to provoke action outside of the shameless mode of everydayness and the confines of compensation within the capitalist arena. As the narrator becomes aware of the fallen, inauthentic nature of his existence, he resolves to reconstruct a block of flats in which actors would repetitively perform rudimentary routine tasks that he would oversee. These tasks range from the mundanity of cooking, emptying bins, to poorly playing a piano. In the day he practiced, pausing when he made mistakes, running over the same passages again and again, slowing right down into the bits that he got wrong.
Through overseeing these tasks, he reclaims his previous mindless existence and reinserts him into a building, unsurprisingly made of glass in the classic modernist style, with his control. The actions which he asks the actors to perform are snippets from everydayness, however they're subverted with the reflexive knowledge of their uselessness. The pianist, for example, is continually playing mistakes, and the elderly lady consistently burns the liver she's cooking. The space between mindless habit and purposeful activity thus gets sharpened by the mistakes. The temporal gap between everyday habit and intended creativity is the most intriguing simulacrum in a novel filled with simulations. The incorrect nature of banal tasks veers slightly towards creative breakthrough, only to be refracted back onto itself under the surveillance of the open apartment and the direction of the narrator or the architect. These actions emphasise the buffering nature of temporality as something refractive of a lived sense of time. Weighted down by an incomplete coordination with the surrounding world, the memory of how to present itself is loading, yet the image is not synchronising itself in time, thus positioning the actors at an obscure angle within the world. The repetitive failure of enacting the task is representative of the phenomenological response to shame in that it reveals a particular rhythm. Susan Miller states that the only rhythmic element of shame that she can identify is the characteristic experience of shrinking away from others and pulling inward and downward. This is indeed true as it represents the isolating nature of shame. The actors never meet or interact and are secluded to their own glass microcosms. The pianist hunched over his piano continually playing the wrong notes, and the elderly lady hunched over her cooking emphasised the shrinking into oneself action of shame. The apartment, in all its defected rhythm, thus becomes a museum of shame. The actors continually reenact their shameful choreography, ensuring that each moment becomes sharpened by mistakes. The protagonist stumbles over how to describe his staff, stating, all the performers, no not performers, that's not the right word, the participants, the staff must be, I mean, will need complete jurisdiction all over the space. The fragmented sentence represents his fractured hold on temporality as he searches for the correct words, whilst the motions themselves are buffering or continually loading. The actors and their roles are indicative of a larger problem within society, mindless inauthentic existence, which Heidegger blames for cultural inefficiency. Whether or not this viewpoints towards an ethical topology, there is merit in noting that the inauthentic state of everydayness denies Dasein from achieving self-mastery. This refusal to achieve greatness is precisely the space that McCarthy's narrator wants to explore as he condemns his actors to recreate failure. The burnt liver, the incorrect playing of the piano, are all indicators of failed attempts at creating something worthwhile or authentic. Shame in its most blatant definition is the fracturing moment of humiliation in which the embodied self is suddenly aware that its actions are being appraised by others. The apartment thus becomes an homage to shame without fully becoming shameful as the mistakes are purposeful and thus part of the inauthentic everydayness that directs them. It is a simulation of shame which appears shameless. However, I believe that the dual understanding of the actions and their dissemination within a choreographed setting reveal the sense of shame that the narrator feels towards his life before the accident. Little is known about the protagonist's life before he was awarded the settlement, apart from unsatisfactory relationships, which he now considers banal. Phillips argues that your project, so to speak, is to fit in with what the other wants you to be, or what they imagine they want you to be, but there are aspects of yourself that are always threatening to break the bonds you need.
McCarthy's narrator realises that his life has been a wasted opportunity and reorates the shame of this into building something authentic, which to him is a museum of failed accomplishments. Moving on to Ellie Williams' collection of short stories, A Trib and Other Stories, is fundamentally concerned with the shame of misinterpretation and feeling undone in a world that appears to revolve around order and normalcy. The stories vary in length from snippets of everyday musings to longer reflections on moments of emotional or physical pain. The narrator or narrators is anonymous and as I will argue is the same voice uniting each tale in a particular rhythm of oscillating prose between shame, shamelessness and importantly human hermeneutic understanding and chaotic resistance. The story Synesthete would like to meet recounts the anonymous narrator's struggle with synesthesia. Similarly framed to the alphabet, the narrative is coiled around the condition with the language reflecting its symptoms. Williams describes neurological synesthesia in the style that Taboo embodies. Neurological synesthesia is an unwieldy phrase to sprinkle into conversation. The verb sprinkles has childish connotations that imply a rhythmatic tendency to infiltrate the adult sphere, reducing the illness to something erratic and shameful. The narrative encapsulates the fragmenting yet vibrant experience of synesthesia as she describes Dawn's light through my curtain stinks, the first cup of tea is an orchestra tuning up and the sound of birdsong outside my window tastes of rose water and it is scalding. The experience is a complete sensory phenomenon, one which muddles the boundaries between standardised epistemological categorisation. As the narrator conflates sounds with sensory processing, her interpretation of the world is tilted and whilst this leads to a colourful narrative, I see fireflies when a tire screeches, smell fried onions when I step on an upturned plug, it fuels isolation. The text plays with the arbitrariness of signification, yet it does not fall into the bracket of postmodern pastiche, as there is a sense of reconstruction, of earnestness. The gulf between a normal understanding of the surrounding world and the life which the narrator instead leads is imprinted with the text preventing it from lapsing into deconstructive play. The notion of play is not what is being explored here, as the narrator longs for a complete, totalised understanding of world and signification. The narrative is whimsical, yet it is not a postmodern exposition of conceptual play, it is something more sincere. The narrator's longing for a sense of normalcy creates a feeling of shame. Always wearing shades and looking either wary or disgusted whenever I leave the house can make for quite a lonely existence. Rather than face the outside world, she retreats to the safety of home, forming most of her relationships online. As previously stated, the notion of shame in the Heideggerian sense acts as an accentuated between state, separating the shameless mode of encountering the everyday and the existential anxiety that leads towards authentic self-awareness. The narrator's initial reaction to shame is to separate herself from the outside world. In an attempt to process fewer sensations and block out the worst unexpected repercussions of my surroundings, I've taken to wearing tinted shades even when indoors. This deviation from the norm of public interaction is written with humour. I'm well aware how daft this looks. Yet the persistent desire to reconnect with the outside world reconstructs an earnest sincerity. A need to reconnect with public life goes against the common trope of individualism that, dom that dominates postmodern discourse. And whilst Williams's story responds to such solipsism, it is ultimately directed towards something more hopeful. Bracken argues that postmodernity is a time when the established roots through life have been destroyed and we are left individually to set a course for ourselves. 
We are left with fragments of maps in which we can have little faith. Williams's narrative, however, directly opposes Bracken's claim, as the narrator is seeking homogeneity amidst the fragments. The unnamed narrator seeks socialisation, and the loneliness she feels is not due to the fragmentation of a nihilistic society, rather a condition that is misrepresented and fuelled by the shame of representation. Sam Browse states that at the heart of such a shift from a post to metamodern cultural sensibility is a renewed emphasis on depth and authenticity in the cultural sphere. And Williams's narrator exemplifies this return to a particular intensity of feeling. The narrative oscillates between frantic prose and lucid reflection to replicate the fracturing yet unifying nature of shame. The narrator muses, my life is often an unmanageable series of sensations before making the commitment to quell her loneliness by signing up to online dating. Experimental language and metaphors are used to explore the discombobulation of the condition, yet there's an uncanny exactness in the language that Williams uses. Grey text on a yellow background sounds so clearly to me like snow on a tin roof, describes the interpretation of text on a computer, which has to be altered as black and a white background is unmanageable. The bizarre sensory image is difficult for the reader to identify with, yet the linguistic components themselves form an image that makes sense. The sound of snow on a tin roof can be easily recalled. We identify with the, sound, the sense of auditory saturation. The narrator is continually, relentlessly bombarded with distracting sounds, sights and smells. The shame that the narrator ascribes her condition is paradoxically represented through James Mench's argument that since it lacks the verbal clothing that would permit its formalisation into a law of society, shame is certainly a more primitive, in the sense of being a less effective than guilt, means of social control. Mensch argues that what occurs during a moment of shame is something in indicative of a primitive, immediate, pre-linguistic type of empathy. Shame precedes understanding of language, as the embarrassment of being observed by another, real or imagined, can be ontologically understood before we have interpreted the world. As Heidegger relates skillful understanding of those things ready to hand, with an acquired understanding of the world, interpretation thus forms the core of language. Williams, Williams utilises the narrator's tentative grasp of universally understood signification to reveal shame, revealing that it is not language itself that caused her shame, but the feeling that she is being observed, misinterpreting the world. The narrator's self-imposed exile from the outside world is reoriented through her turn towards the internet and online socialising. The world of digital relationships is often pejoratively critiqued as the medium of technology is seemingly dissolving our ability to converse with inorganic reality and we shamefully rely on the anonymity of an avatar. Alan Kirby's notion of digimodernism is a way of identifying texts after postmodernism that engage with the digital sphere by positioning the consumer or reader as having authorial hold over the content. The content is tangible, the act is physical. Kirby regards the contemporary moment as one of rupture, driven by a technological innovation which permits such a form. Shame is indeed rupturing, however, and most importantly, it is also unifying, as it leads to greater self-awareness, in the sense of narrative. It reconstructs a sense of self that mirrors a particular historical moment, thus reinstating hermeneutic value. Williams's protagonist controls her online simulacrum herself, yet she's forced into the digital sphere by her own shame, effacing and thus confusing the medium in which new relationships are formed. Kirby's authorial hold is therefore another way in which the digital banal controls our interpretation of ownership and is merely another shameless <coughs> diversion from authenticity towards which we collectively feel shame. In conclusion, 
Through a close reading of Remainder and the example from a trip, there's a clear reconstruction occurring within contemporary British fiction, wherein shame is utilised as a turning point towards individuating anxiety. As Daniel Ross states, the experience of shame is the experience of a disruption, whether individual or collective, that urges us towards a readjustment. Metamodernism can therefore be defined by a reconstructive, effective paradigm. As shame reorients attention away from the evasive state of everydayness, there exists within the narrative form the prospect of amelioration. Thank you.